It's an exciting week, really, um, in my mind, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, softball season starts tomorrow, as James kind of under the radar mentioned. I thought it needed a little more attention than that. Some of us hold blue light special dear to our hearts. Matt Leinbarger recently joked to me, he said that it's more important how I play on the softball field than how I preach in the pulpit. <laughs> but uh, this is an exciting time for me. Uh, today marks a year of being here at Skillman, and so I just want to say thank you for the privilege of getting to be here with you. Thank you. It, it, is, it is an honor to be your pastor. Um, you are a great group of people, a great congregation to call home, to call brothers and sisters. So thank you for that privilege. But uh, today is obviously Father's Day, as we've alluded to some throughout the service. And uh, I was thinking this week as I was preparing uh, about some of the, the blessings that I've had in my life in regards to, to my dad. I have a a really great dad, and I was thinking about some of the times in my life that were special, um, some things that we've done, and I thought back, there, there's many, many things. You couldn't, I could stand here for a week ta- telling all the stories, but some of the ones that came to mind were when I was in sixth grade, my dad took me on a fishing trip down to Rockport, which is in South Texas off of the Gulf, and uh, we did this fishing trip the right way. We had a guide. Because if you don't know where to go, you don't catch anything. And so this fishing trip was really special to me. I was about 12 at the time. And this guide must have taken us to the absolute perfect spot because all day it was just redfish after redfish after redfish. And I'm, I'm not crazy about fishing, but it's a lot of fun when you literally are just constantly reeling in fish. And so that was one thing that came to mind as I was thinking about a special memory. Another one was when I was a freshman in college, um, my dad had just bought a motorcycle and he came up and we went for a ride out in the hill country and we'd stopped off at the Oasis. If you are familiar with the Austin area, it's like the best view, sunset view in, in Austin. We were actually there in the middle of the day, but it was still pretty breathtaking to go and sit out over the, the edge of Lake Travis and just look at God's beautiful creation. This was back when Lake Travis actually has water. If you've been down there lately, there's not so much. It's not much of a lake. But um, the, last, the last thing I, I wanted to share was, and this was especially meaningful to me, um, when I was living in the Netherlands, I actually served in Alkmaar for about a year with some Greater Europe missionaries. I don't know if you know Peter and McCray Hayes by chance. Yeah, so I was serving with the Hayes, and my parents... That year was their 30th anniversary, and they could have taken a trip anywhere they wanted to that year. You know, they could have gone to Hawaii, they could have gone somewhere really, you know, great and exotic, tropical, whatever. But my parents chose to come and visit me over in Holland with, with their, with their, for their 30th anniversary and come spend time with the people that I had gotten to know and love and serve with. And I just look back on that, and it was just really meaningful to me that my parents would rather be with me than somewhere else when they could celebrate that any other way. But I share those things because something that that I've realized as I was thinking back throughout my life and on these different, different things is that the way that I know my dad as a loving 
father is through these experiences that I've had with him. And that's just three things throughout my whole life. But it's through being with my dad and receiving his love that I've come to know him as a good and loving father. And as Daniel kind of alluded to before he sang, um, not everybody has great relationships with their dad. If I were to poll the room, I bet probably half of us would say, yeah, I had a great dad and we have a great relationship or we had a great relationship. But there are probably others of us that would say, you know, my relationship with my dad is really difficult and he's, I don't know if I'd say he's a great dad. Regardless of what our story is, what I do know is that the same, there's something that is true, true about all of us. We all have the same desire in our heart. And that desire is we want to know and be known by a loving father. It's, it's hardwired into us is to know and be known by a loving father. It's just this deep, deep desire, this deep need. And thankfully, regardless of how our earthly fathers have measured up, as Daniel was saying, we have a heavenly father that is loving, that desires to know us. And we can know him, and not just know about him, we can know him personally, intimately, as our good and loving father. The question is how? How do we know him in that way? And that's what I want to talk about today as we look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. There's blue Bibles in the back of the pew in front of you if you need one. 1 John chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 through 3 to, to answer the question, how do we know God as our good and loving Father? How can we experience Him as the good and loving Father that He is? So as you find 1 John 3, I'll give you a couple more seconds, we'll pray before we, we look at the text, and I'll invite you to stand with me here in just a moment. But let's pray. Father, I, as we were singing earlier, how deep the Father's love for us, that line in there that you, you have done what you've done in love to make, it says, to make a wretch his treasure. I think of those, those two words just stand out in my mind because I would imagine that in, a, in this room there are some of us throughout our experiences in our lives with our, our relationships with our, our fathers, there are some of us who our dads at times made us feel like a wretch. And there are other times when maybe we were blessed with the blessing of feeling like a treasure. Thankfully, you have taken us, though we are wretches because of our sin, and you have made us your treasure. I pray today that our time in the Word this morning would help us know deep down inside of us, help us experience that in your eyes we are a treasure. That you are our good and perfect loving Father, and that no matter what we've been through on this earth, we have a Father that loves us. 
I pray that we would experience that. I pray that if we've never known that, if we've never experienced that, that today for the first time we would experience that. And if we have before, I pray that we would come back to that understanding that you would give us a fresh taste of that reality today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand and read 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1, it says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. All right, you can take a seat. So John begins this passage, he says, see, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He says, see. Another word would be behold. And so John starts out, he's, he's saying that he wants us to, to not just know about God's love, he wants us to be caught up with it, to be amazed by it, to Behold it in all of its glory. And I believe that that's what's happening to John in this very moment as he writes. Because if we were walking through the, the book of 1 John, you would see that this, these three verses are kind of like an outburst. It's like he's riding along and things are flowing logically and so forth. And then all of a sudden he just erupts in this moment of praise. I, it's almost like I see him writing and then all of a sudden he just goes into a prayer and then continues writing. And this is almost like a little prayer in the midst of this book. But what's interesting about this is that he is, is overtaken by God's love in such a way that he doesn't even have a category for the kind of love that he's talking about. In the ES, ESV, what, what we just read, it says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. If you're reading in the NIV, you'll see that it says, what great love. I think the King James says something similar. And so you see that when, when we see in different translations that there's a difference in the wording, what that means is there's, there's kind of a debate about what's going on here. Well, in the Greek, this is actually an idiomatic expression. And I'm not going to get into all of that, but the, the main idea that he's trying to capture here, it's really hard to... to to translate a, an idi idiom, but what the closest way to translate this would be to say, what country this love comes from? What country this love comes from? And I think what he's trying to express is that God's love, his experience of it, is so different than any experience of any other type of love that he's had on the earth that he's saying, this must come from another place. This must be from outside of this world. It must be from another country, another planet even. And so John is getting caught up in the moment, in his experience of the Father's love. And I think that John knew experientially what we read about in today's Old Testament reading in Zephaniah, and I want to read it again for you. And I think that is why he starts to sing, he starts to pray in the middle of writing. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says, The Lord your God is in your midst. He's in your midst. 
a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I think John had experienced these words. He knew that God was with him, that he was mighty to save. He had experienced God rejoicing over him and exulting over him. He had been quieted by God's love. It was not something that he wrote about as if he had researched it in books. It is something that he had experienced in his life firsthand. And so he erupts in this praise. Think about that for a second. The, the, the words of this passage here in Zephaniah. I mean, insert your name there. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one will save. who will save. He will rejoice over Jeremiah with gladness. Put your name there. He will quiet Jeremiah by his love. He will exult over Jeremiah with loud singing. Enter in your, word, your name. The God of the universe who created everything rejoices over you. He rejoices over me. Our Heavenly Father exults over you. He exults over me. I think it's really hard for us to believe this because a lot of times we don't feel this way about ourselves. We get bogged down in the junk and the mess of life and it just seems like there's no way this can be true because we know, I know my heart, and if God knows my heart more than I know my heart, how in the world could he rejoice over me? But the reality is that if we are his children, this is how he feels about us, and this is his heart towards us. So it doesn't matter if we feel unworthy. It doesn't matter if this doesn't seem like it's a possibility or it's, that it's true. It is true. And John continues, and he gives us a reason why we know that God has given his love to us. How do we know that this is true? Look at the, the second half of verse 1 with me. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And he ex explains that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So anyone who is a part of God's elect, who has been reborn by faith in Jesus as the eternal Son of God, we have been adopted and we have been brought into God's family. We have been called children of God. That's what God declares about us. That's what we are. If we look at Ephesians 1, you don't have to flip there. If you want to, you can. I'll read it for us. But in Ephesians 1, it captures, I think, really, really uh, beautifully and clearly what he's referring to in, the, in our adoption and being called God's children. In verse 3 of Ephesians 1, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And this is the verse that's, that's key even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So God, in eternity past, looked upon us 
and chose us to be a part of his family. He decided that he wanted us to be his children. Now, this whole idea of adoption as a, as a spiritual reality, I don't know how easy or hard that is to understand for you, but I know for me, I kind of have a little bit of an advantage in this area because I'm actually adopted here. Um, my parents adopted me when I was three months old. I think I've ref- referred to that before. And so on one level, I get the idea of being somebody who is not a part of somebody's family and them bringing you into their family and that being something that's just, it's just now what the case is and it's irreversible, it's just going to be your future, it's your new mom, your new dad, you have new brothers and sisters and like it or not, they, they, this is what it is, it is just a permanent thing. So I get adoption in one level, like on, on that level, but what stands out to me and what is so hard for me to understand is that God's adoption of us is different than my parents' adoption of me. You see, when I think about with my parents, they chose me and they brought me into their family, but they had no idea what I was going to be like. They had no idea how I would turn out. They had no idea what was going to happen down the road. You know, they didn't know if I was going to put them through heaven or hell. They, they just kind of signed up saying, well, just luck of the draw here, see what happens. But what I think is so amazing about our adoption, and I think this is why John is so caught up in God's love, specifically that he is loved in the sense that he's a child of God, is that, think about this, God knowing all things, seeing all things, as one who stands outside of time, he saw each one of us, He saw inside our hearts, he saw all of the sin and the ugliness and the brokenness and the junk. He saw my anger, my pride, my my selfishness, all of that stuff. And even though he could see all of that, he said, I want that man in my family. I want that woman in my family. That is crazy. To think that God, knowing everything about us, knowing that we hated him, that we were his enemies, would choose us, in spite of ourselves, to be a part of his family. I think knowing God as our good and loving Father, kind of just one of the baseline things that is, is essential to this, is grasping this reality that we really are his dearly loved children. And not that we're just his dearly loved children because you think of like just, oh, well, we're his, we're his progeny. Like he can't, he had no choice in the matter. He adopted us. We are his dearly loved adopted children. He sought us out in spite of all of our stuff and brought us into his family. And I think as John is here in this passage, it's through taking this in, through marveling in this reality, not just thinking about it or or giving some sort of mental assent, but meditating on it, experiencing it firsthand, is how we know God as our good and loving Father. We have to see that we are dearly loved children of God. Let's look at verse 2. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see him 
as he is. So God's adopted us as his children. We are called his children, and that's what we are now. But in verse 2, John begins to talk about what's coming for us, this future that is not here yet, that we haven't experienced yet. But he says that we will be changed, and, and he tells us exactly why, because Christ is coming back. He says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. And what is going on here? I think what John is referring to, he's talking about when Christ comes back bodily, when Christ returns to the earth, as we've read about, if you know the scriptures, you know that he came once as an infant to live, die on the cross, and he was raised, but he's coming back again. And John is referring to his second coming, and he says that when Christ comes, this is going to be when, it, when he uses the word appearance, he's talking about in a bodily form, his resurrected, glorified body. He says, we shall see him as he is. And what that means is that you and I, who are believers, who are children of God, we will behold Christ in all of his glory, all of his purity, all of his beauty, with our physical eyes. We will actually see him. And this encounter will be so powerful that we will never be the same again. That's what he says here. He says that as a result of seeing Jesus appear, we will be like him. Now what does that mean? Does that mean that we all of a sudden become gods? No. What it means is that our transformation from broken sinners to Christ-like, transformed, holy, righteous children will be complete. We will be glorified like Christ. We will receive our resurrection bodies. We will be completely free from sin. We will be healed. We will be restored. Our process, our earthly existence, that where, where God is making us more and more like Jesus, that process will come to completion. In today's New Testament reading in 1 Corinthians, which Lori just read for us, there's a really, really key verse I want to read real quick that talks about what he's getting at. In verse 12 of chapter 13, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. So once again, this is talking about us actually physically seeing Jesus. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So what's going to happen is that when you and I, who are children of God, who have placed our faith in Christ, when we come face to face with Jesus, not only will, like right now, what is true of us, if you're a believer, the power of sin in your life has been broken. But the presence of sin in your life is still, it, it, that's still a reality, right? We still have sinfulness, we still battle with the flesh. But when we come face to face with Jesus, not only will sin have no power o over us, it will actually not be present in, a, in us anymore. We will be, that's what it's talking about, being transformed and receiving a glor our glorification. And so, when that happens, when we are rid of the presence of sin, we are then able to know God fully, as this talks about in 1 Corinthians, as we are fully known. So, for us, let's kind of think of it this way. As, as somebody who is a, a, a broken sinner who has not yet confessed faith in Christ, they cannot know God because of the fact that they are not his child. They, they are completely marred, completely wrecked by sin. 
then when we place our faith in Jesus, we are, we are saved, we are given a new heart. It says that we're given a heart of flesh instead of our heart of stone. We are born again. You think of all of the, that language. And so then we are now able to know God, but we, don't, we are not able to know him to the extent that we will be in the future. And what John is talking about is in the future, when we now don't have any presence of sin in us, we are able to know God fully as he fully knows us. And so what I love about this is to think about it as way back when God created Adam and Eve, they were, before they ever sinned, before they ate of the tree, how they had unbroken fellowship with God. There was nothing hindering them from knowing God. That will be restored when we see Christ. We will be brought back into that relationship. It'll be restored. We're able to know God fully. And so Christ's return changes everything for us. And think about it in light of knowing God and experiencing Him as our loving Father. It is going to radically change the game. And so if we want to know God as our good and loving Father, we start by seeing and marveling in the fact that we are his beloved children. I think the second thing is we set our hope on seeing Christ when he appears. We set our hope on that because we know that when that happens, we will know God fully. It is the only thing that will deliver what our hearts truly want, to know and be known by God without any hindrance. So you can think of lots of things that people put their hope in. Some of us, if if you're a sports fan, you might be tempted to put your hope in your team winning the championship. Maybe you're into the soccer, and so here that the World Cup's here, if your team hasn't been eliminated yet, maybe you're placing your hope in your team winning the championship. Or maybe, you know, a common one for us, just in general, is some of us put our hope in finding the perfect job. If we just got this job, doing what we love, that paid what we really think we need, man, we would be okay. That's another common one. Some other things, um, some of us may be, may be putting our hope in getting our kids graduated and out of the house. Or for those of us here at Skillman, since this is a little bit younger crowd, maybe some of us are putting our hope in our kids being potty trained and finally ending that chapter of our life. Whatever it is, we, we are tempted constantly to put our hope in these little temporary things, thinking that our life will be okay just when this happens. If this just changed, I would be okay. Folks, the only thing that will truly make you okay, the only thing that will make me okay, is when we see Christ as he is and we're transformed in such a way that we will be able to know God fully. This is the only thing worth putting our hope in. Let's look at verse 3 real quick, and then we'll wrap up. So he says, after saying, talking about what's, what's coming in the future, how we're going to see Christ, in verse 3 he says this, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, I want to make something really clear as we go through this verse, because sometimes we misread the Bible, and we read a verse like this, and we come to wrong conclusions. Notice that John says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So we purify ourselves, we're called to this self-purification after we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, after we have set our hope on him and him alone. So the point that I really want to be very clear on is 
We are called to purify ourselves because we have been forgiven and declared righteous and adopted, and because we have our hope in Christ, not in order to be forgiven and adopted, not in order to have this hope. It's a response to it. It's an act of worship, an act of gratitude, an act of self-sacrifice, not an attempt to gain right standing with God. It's not an attempt to save ourselves. We can't purify ourselves ultimately. We can't change our sinful, broken hearts on our own. Only Jesus can do that. But once Jesus has changed us, once we have been adopted into God's family, we're called to walk a life that is pure. We're called to walk in a way that honors God, that is righteous, that is holy. And so this means that our lives should be marked by the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. And it's, it's something that is, you can't even do this. You can't even walk this way if you aren't a, unless you are a believer. Unbelievers don't have the capacity to purify themselves because you don't have the Spirit. So God is talk, or John is talking about sanctification, the process of in between when we're saved and when we are glorified. In that time period while we're here on this earth, we are called to pursue purity, but it's not an attempt to save ourselves. It's a response to being saved, to being adopted. But why do we do this? We do this because Christ is pure, as it says here. We, who thus hopes in himself, or hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. We do this because Jesus is pure and he is coming back. And when we see him, we will see him in all of his purity. And we want to get ourselves ready. We want to be prepared for his coming. We want to be able to, in that moment, be caught up in his purity and bring the, you know, the very best that we have to him because he's worthy of it. Now, I thought about it this way. If, if you knew somebody really, really special was coming over to your house for dinner, now, I, I want to say the president, but I don't know what your opinions are of the president, so if you don't happen to like the president, pick somebody else that you actually do like if they're coming over to your house, my guess is that you would probably mow your yard, you would probably clean your house, and you would probably do something for dinner other than mac and cheese or McDonald's, right? If somebody special is coming over to your house, you prepare yourself and you prepare your house for their arrival. I think of it, what John is talking about is there's no one more special, there's no one more pure, there's no one more righteous and you are going to meet him face to face, and you want to be prepared for that, and you want to be ready for that. And so he's calling us to respond to the person of Christ already so that when he's here, we're able to bask in that completely. We're not caught up in anything else. And obviously we, we are going to fight with our sinful nature from now until then, and it's not like we're called, to, you know, it's not practically that we're going to be perfect, that we're going to be absolutely pure. But in God's eyes, we are pure, and he's asking us, and he's given us the spirit to pursue purity with everything that we've got, to seek it with all that we have. And that's what he's asking of us. So I believe that the third thing in experiencing God as our good and loving Father, and actually knowing him in this way, is by seeking to be pure. And the verse that came to mind as I was preparing if you're fam you might be familiar with this. In Psalm 18, it says this. Psalm 18, verse 26. It says, 
with the purified, you show yourself pure, and with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. And so what this psalm teaches us is that there is a blessing in knowing God in ways that are more profound, that are more clear, that are deeper for those who are walking in purity than for those who are not. So it's not that if you're a believer that you have no, no opportunity to know God. No, you do. You have an opportunity to know him. But those who are walking in purity, God delights in revealing deeper parts of himself too. So there is a treasure, there is a gift, there is a reward for those of us who actually seek to live a life of purity. And so we will know God as our good and loving Father in deeper ways when we seek to be pure. So I'm, I want to want to close, but what I want to say before I do is, I don't know where you are today. I don't know. You come in here, maybe this whole idea of knowing God as Father is is old hat to you, or maybe it's brand new. Or maybe some of us who walk in here, and this, this is a completely new idea. Well, as we talked about this morning, it is possible for us to know God because he has sent his Son to the earth. Because God took the form of flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, came to the earth, was born, lived a perfect life, and then died on the cross, bearing the sins of the world, bearing your sins and my sin, making it possible for us who are sinners, who are separated from God by that sin, to be restored to God and accepted and forgiven through his life and through his death and through his resurrection. And he was raised on the third day so that you and I could be brought back to God, be restored to him and have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. So if you haven't experienced that, Today could be the day, and I would love if it were the day, God would love it if it were the day that you walked over from death to life, that you walked over from being dead in sin and receiving forgiveness and reconciliation through Christ to God the Father. But imagine that there are a lot of us in this room, we know God as our Father. But if if you were really, really honest, and I, I mean, think about honest to the point, maybe you wouldn't even say it to anybody else. Right now, you don't feel, you don't, you're not experiencing that God is your good and loving Father. You have doubts about whether he really loves you. You have doubts about when you read Zephaniah 3, and you hear that he exults over us, and he sings over us. In your heart, you're like, there's no way he does that for me. If he knows me and he knows what I've been doing and he knows my history, there's no way he does that for me. My prayer is that today God's heart would begin to reveal to you that his heart for you is not dictated by what you do or what you don't do. It's not based on your performance, but it's based on his love that he has given to you in Jesus. And so my prayer is that the gospel would be the basis for how you understand God's heart rather than you and how you feel, or your performance. So don't let this last week dictate what God says about you, what, how he feels towards you. Let his truth, what he says, what he has communicated here, be the baseline. Regardless of where you are, regardless of how you came in here, regardless of your relationship with your earthly father, 
we have a heavenly Father who loves us perfectly, deeply, and he longs for us to experience it. May we experience that today. Let's pray.